Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by the litigation and policy team of Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. I'm Elliot Stein. I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering financials litigation. And my name is Nathan Dean, and I'm an analyst with BI covering financials policy. We're delighted today to be joined by Herman Chan, who is not just one of the foremost experts on regional banks, but also our colleague and friend here at BI. Herman has been covering the banking sector, including the regionals, for more than 15 years. He's been on the sell side as a research analyst. He's been in investor relations at a leading regional bank. And for the past four years, he's led BI's regional bank coverage as a senior analyst. We're really excited to have Herman here today, since there's really no one better to explain what we've seen these last few weeks with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and more broadly, the um, the most recent banking crisis. So Herman, welcome to Votes and Verdicts. Great. Thanks, Ali. I really appreciate it and uh, looking forward to the discussion. So, you know, we'll jump into some substantive conversation in a minute um, about the, the banking crisis. Um, but... What we like to do with guests usually is to get a little more background about them first. Um, You know, you've been involved with regional banks for about a decade and a half now, both as an analyst and also in investor relations. So, you know, I I thought it'd be good to get your your take on how you got into research generally, how you got into regional banks specifically, and maybe as part of that, tell us, you know, what you like about covering the sector. Sure, that'd be great, Elliot. Yeah, that's right. I've been uh, doing uh, banks and, and regional banks specifically for a while now. Uh, what really got me interested was I knew I wanted to be in equity research. It, it sort of fits my personality, and I, I'm a numbers person by trade. So it uh, researching gives an individual really the opportunity to better understand the company, become an expert in it, and, and really uh, focus on the performance and the potential uh, performance of the bank and the industry as a whole. Um, I started out my career in equity research um, too many years ago to remember at this point, but it's been a great journey, covered financial services my entire career, including life insurance, asset managers, large cap banks, small cap banks, and really cut my teeth during the great financial crisis, which was really a eye-opening and learning experience and really shaped the way I think about banks and policy in general. And so I've been with BI for about four years, as you mentioned before, covering regionals. It was really an opportunity because I was covering the large cap banks as an associate um, at a prior institution and got the opportunity to cover regionals as a senior analyst on the sell side. And my career has really taken off ever since then. So it's been great. And I got to imagine these last two, maybe three weeks have been 
probably the craziest since the great financial crisis for you. Yeah. Except maybe COVID, I don't know. COVID, uh, the, this uh, mini crisis of confidence, I would call it, uh, has been uh, really um, interesting these last four years at BI and, uh, and covering uh, the current crisis at, at Bloomberg has really been interesting because of the platform that we're on where we are able to connect with clients via research, but also via media in uh, radio and TV as well. So I've been really busy these last few weeks, but it's been really, uh, really been fun as well. So, yeah, so let's let's talk about this this most recent crisis, you know, I think most people have a general understanding of what happened, you know, in terms of, you know, Silicon Valley Bank in particular having a very non-diversified customer base, and then also, you know, what appears to be mismanagement of their uh, interest rate risks. Um, but, you know, I'd love to get your explanation and, you know, like the simplest explanation for what happened, like talk to, talk to us like we're five-year-olds. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot of different issues that that really contributed to the failure of the bank. I guess if you really break it down, there, there's one issue on the, on the bank's uh, asset side of the balance sheet and one issue on the bank's liability side of the balance sheet. So on the asset side, uh, SVB invested very heavily into uh, investment securities, specifically held to maturity securities when interest rates were zero. So they built up their investment securities portfolio at a very large clip. Uh, subsequently, when interest rates rose, those the value of the securities fell and they were sitting on a $15 billion uh, paper loss position in their held to maturity portfolio. Uh, secondarily, on the deposit side, the liability side, uh, SVB really was the premier bank that catered to the venture capital and startup communities. So during the pandemic, when rates were zero, startups were raising money left and right from venture capital firms. They were doing IPOs and, and garnering really astronomical valuations. So all of that money flowed into SBB's balance sheet in the form of deposits. And SBB wasn't really growing their loan portfolio as fast as they were on the deposit side. So in effect, they, they needed to park those funds somewhere else, hence the, the growth in the securities portfolio. Now, fast forward to early uh, March, uh, the bank was looking to raise uh, capital and sell the AFS portfolio uh, at a loss position because uh, they, they, these were securities that they also bought during the, the height of the pandemic when rates were zero. Uh, that uh, maneuvering from a capital standpoint really spooked the markets and, and contributed to the initial uh, share price decline because uh, management didn't do a good job of articulating to the street and investors their their expectations for how to manage the securities portfolio and, and it really caught investors by surprise, uh, contributing to the fact that uh, the share price decline drove uh, the spotlight to the AFS book with a $15, $15 billion loss position, which in effect, if they would have had to realize that would have wiped out the book value. So the market was spooked. Uh, that in turn spooked the depositors. And given the fact that depositors now have a very free hand in terms of uh, 
extricating uh, their deposits from from a bank via via um, their phones and other electronic avenues and given the fact that social media is a big influence as well there was a herd mentality from its startups and vcs and really contributed to the deposit flight and eventually regulators need to step in and, and close the bank so you know herman i actually you bring up a great point here you know, you listen all the the uh you know the the reasons why svb failed and so forth like that you know, you and I have had some conversations this week about the congressional hearings, and one of the big questions we hear in Washington is, is this a regulatory problem or a regulator problem? You know, and so the question I have for you is, as you dive, as you delved into SVB and the situation and so forth like that, you know, what are you, what's your initial thoughts on the regulatory response? Were regulators able to identify these items or were they slow to the game? I mean, I just, I, I, I'm really curious on where do you think the, the response of the Fed and the San Francisco Fed and the FDIC fall into this? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of management uh, doing the wrong thing in terms of not managing the risk properly, uh, especially interest rate risk, which is um, as, as Michael Barr, the head of Fed supervision has discussed earlier this week, it's, it's a bread and butter core uh, risk that banks in general manage. And it's one of, it's, it's the same thing as banks managing credit risk and making sure you know, their borrowers pay them back. This is a, a fundamental way and a fundamental thing that all banks manage and look at. And the fact that they they blew it really speaks to the fact that they were they these risks were unappreciated or underappreciated at the bank. I, I would also say that I think that regulators do need to take some blame because it's come out that um, the San Francisco Fed did raise red flags on the bank as early as 2021, and uh, if they were a bit more forceful with their enforcement and, and their duty as and role as regulators. Maybe this whole situation wouldn't have unfolded the way it has. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, SVB didn't have a, a chief risk officer for what eight nine months. Right, that's true. That that's something that they probably should have done and, and filled that very important role a bit earlier. But you have a CFO that been in the business for a very long time. You you have a treasury function that should be managing these risks on a day-to-day -day basis much more closely. And ultimately, you have a CEO that uh, should have taken more responsibility uh, on looking in, into these matters. So I think there, there's really a lot of blame to go around. Yeah, you know, when uh, Fed Vice Chair Barr testified earlier this week, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the interest rate risk models at SVB were not grounded in reality. You knew the uh, the regulators were going to have some issues with that. Um, so, just turning a little bit more towards you know the response of the regulators. You know, so you know Silicon Valley Bank was a small bank what two years ago, and it's ballooned up. And before its collapse, it was around two hundred and eleven billion in assets. So that would have put it in a, a different category of regulations, but. We've seen statements from Congress that they want to go back and revisit the SIFI threshold, whether it's 50 or 250 billion. And, and my my analysis says that's not even gonna, it's not even worth really talking about. But the Fed and the FDIC and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency have said that they have the ability to go back 
and reapply enhanced prudential standards to banks above 100 billion in assets. So things like higher capital requirements, tougher liquidity coverage ratios, stress tests. If the Fed were to do this, what's your outlook on U.S. regional banks? Is this a much more stringent environment for them, or is this something that you think that they can manage in the long run? It is something that they will have to manage in the long run. Um, I'm not sure it really changes the trajectory of the bank, and I think these banks probably would welcome some of uh, these enhanced regulatory standards given the fact of everything that we've been through one thing i would want to would want to ask is everybody's talking about higher debt increases for in the capital structure for these banks or taking um, making the capital ratios a bit more conservative by taking out the um, unrealized losses in the available for sale securities book but Really, the issue with with SBB was the liquidity and the liquidity of the balance sheet and the and the pace of deposits that really left the bank in such a ferocious fashion that I don't think anybody would have expected that. And I'm not sure if that scenario would have played out in any other regional or even larger bank that that bank would still survive to this day. So I think the, the crux of the issue is the, the regulators need to focus on the liquidity and maybe change the way they look at liquidity based on uh, the amount of uninsured deposits, meaning chunkier commercial deposits that sit on banks' balance sheets and, and really better understand the behavior of those deposits when we get a deposit flight scenario that failed SVB. So I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. So again, we're we're recording this on March 30th, and any time now, uh, in the next day or so, we are anticipating President Biden is going to put out a executive order directing regulators to do tougher regulations. Now, mm-hmm. I'm going to make you president of the United States, and I'm going to limit <laughs> your authority. All right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to you know. So I'm going to say that you have the ability to write this executive order and tell the Fed and the OCC and the FDIC what to do. What would you want them to do? I would focus more on the liquidity side. We need to buff up the liquidity coverage ratio, I think, and maybe uh, have it in place for, for these banks that are 50 or $100 billion and above, and really tweak some of the assumptions within the LCR. Right now, the, the one of the, the main components of the, if, if we get into the weeds, one of the main components of the LCR is operational deposits versus non-operational deposits. We probably need to factor in insured deposits versus uninsured deposits as well uh, to to really delineate the fact that these uninsured deposits um, cannot really be counted in times of stress and in times of need. So you bring up deposits and that's a that's a perfect segue for my next question. You know, there's currently the cap and especially if we have any non-US listeners uh, listening at the moment, you know, the cap for deposit insurance is $250,000 per individual. And there's been a lot of talk about floating that up to one million or five million, but you know, just in, in again in looking at SVB, it wasn't really the. I mean, there were several firms there that had. I think the FDIC chairman at one point even said that like something like nineteen billion dollars worth of deposits were in the top ten accounts. Right. You know, is there a 
is there a solution that Congress can do? Because you know, changing FDIC insurance is a is a congressional matter. Changing the assessment is an FDIC matter. But the mm-hmm. the actual is there a solution that Congress can come up with that would actually help a situation like SVB that doesn't just also inherently cover all the un- unsecured deposits across the uh, across the country? Yeah, uh, that's really a good question. I, I think uh, that increasing the the insurance limit, the threshold, may be a way to calm fears. But as you mentioned before, these are very you know large deposits, multi million dollar deposits in certain accounts, and I don't think that increasing it to a million dollars really makes a big difference. Uh, I think the upshot is that banks really need to be more conservative with the way they they manage the balance sheets, uh, way they manage interest rate risk, everything. You don't want to give depositors a reason to leave the bank. So all of this suggests to us that banks will be much more conservative with the way they manage their, their investment securities portfolio. They'll probably hedge their assets uh, uh, both on the loans and security sides a bit more to to really uh, you know protect themselves against interest rate movements and and increase capital increase liquidity standards all of those things should create a more conservative bank and a cons- more conservative banking system so the buyers would have less reason to leave to join a, a competitor and my, my last question before I turn it back to Elliot, um, you know, the the failure of Silicon Valley Bank is going to cost the uh, FDIC insurance fund, the DIF, if you will, $20 billion. And I, I saw that Signature was around $2.5 billion, And that's got to be made up by the banks. So obviously, yep. the FDIC said that they're going to put out a new assessment for this. You know, if the United States were to move forward and change deposit insurance, is it the big banks that are going to be paying the most for this just because they have the higher deposits or can we see this in your view across the board? Yeah, it seems to me based on the commentary from the hearings over the past a couple of days is that uh, the, the the head of the FDIC seemed to suggest that they will be a bit more uh, nuanced in terms of how they uh push the assessment to the industry, meaning the fact that some of these community banks that have no you know, connection to SBB or, or Signature and don't operate in the same geographies, don't operate in the same customer sets, could be relieved of the uh, higher assessments. Um, so uh, you, you, the typical community bank is below you know 10 billion in assets so anything above that probably you know, the rest of the industry collectively would need to pay into um, recall that the the diff is already below what they want in terms of the the coverage so there was already a two basis points increase in the assessment for 2023 and that's only going to go higher uh, with a special assessment to, to really um, replenish the 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 insurance fund so I have a question maybe for the, for the two of you and Herman maybe you go first and then Nathan you chime in but you know you were just talking about the congressional hearings I just wanted to get both your views on, you know, what you thought of them. Was it, you know, it, it felt like it was more policy actually than politics, although there was some politics as there always is. 
Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, we, we did see some humility uh, from from the regulators, specifically Michael Barr, uh, the the head of the uh, the the Fed in terms of regulating the banks. Um, he says they're having an assessment in terms of what went wrong, and it seems like there is some blame to the regulators and the Fed regulators themselves. Um, and then you know, policy-wise, there was talk about what, what comes next and next steps. And uh, the regulators had talked about May 1st with um, a report that will lay out their findings and recommendations. So there, things seem to be moving fairly quickly on that front. So we're, we're really looking forward to what the policymakers think about so what, what needs to happen next. Um, and maybe, Nathan, you can chime in in terms of what you expect. Yeah, you know, I, I, I you've seen a million of these, so I'm very <laughs> curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and I watched all five hour or five hours and three <laughs> minutes of the House Financial Services Committee. I mean, these were these were working hearings. These were not political hearings. I mean, obviously there were, you know, like Herman mentioned, parts of political theater in there. But I think this also talks about the strength of the relationship between the chairman and ranking member of both the Senate Banking and the uh, House Financial Services Committee, because this is a situation where it's easy to blame things. And there is no one thing. You know, you can either blame regulations, you can blame regulators, you can blame SVB. And with that touch of humility that came from the, the 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 Fed and the FDIC and so forth like that, there was more of a seriousness to this issue. So, you know, I I still don't think there's going to be a congressional solution to this because I think the Fed is going to use its own authority to move forward. And I think that May 1st report is going to just show about how the Fed is going to do it. But uh, certainly a lot uh, less uh, controversy in these hearings than I had originally thought there would be. What do you think we're going to call this crisis like in five years, right? I mean, the, the 08 crisis we call the GFC now, the great financial crisis or global financial crisis. We had the SNL crisis in the early 90s, I guess. Um, what is this, the regional bank crisis? Herman, any thoughts? Yeah, I think it. Uh, I think regional bank crisis. It's not super catchy, but it really gets to uh, the crux of the matter. Nathan, any thoughts? You know, I was just thinking. It's like I was trying to think of something fun. I saw somebody on Twitter say, you know, this was going to be the the big hangover weekend. You know, just to, <laughs> just because it all took place over over one weekend. But you know, I, I think the regional bank or you know maybe the SIFI something. But it, it it's going to be a blurb. You know, I think because you know, and Herman, correct me if you're wrong, but it does feel like from the investor community that the contagion has been stopped for now. And I, I certainly have seen the White House starting to make uh, statements about how they feel like contagion is stopped. So maybe this was just a blurb and not something much bigger. I mean, especially when it comes to like First Republic. I, I was just going to ask, um, you know, you're saying the contagion is stopped, but there's news there, there, you know, there have been concerns that there may be like a sort of a second wave of bank runs, sort of more slow moving as people move their, um, money out of you know deposit accounts that are earning like nothing into money market funds or something else. Does that worry you at all? It worries me more as an earnings issue than a solvency issue or an existential issue. Um, banks will manage through it uh, with deposits continuing to decline. We've already seen deposits sort of drop last year in 2022, and this is a a continuation of that, uh, given the, the fact that rates are much higher than they were 
uh, banks really are counting on some inertia from their uh, from their depositors. And if the deposit flight continues into money market funds, really what the banks will need to do is increase their deposit costs um, to, to entice uh, these folks to remain at their banks. So it's uh, and that also means that banks will need to increase their their lending rates um, to uh, across their product set, you know, mortgages, credit cards, commercial loans, commercial real estate loans. So that's going to affect the consumer uh, and that's going to affect businesses. So it's it will potentially lead to a slower economic growth scenario, which is something that, that we're really interested in, in monitoring and hearing more about with um, earnings for, for the regionals a couple weeks away. Yeah, that'll, that'll definitely be, earnings season coming up is going to be really interesting, not just for the regionals, but for so many different uh, sectors, I think. Um, all right, so as we always do in our Votes and Verdicts podcast, we like to end with a couple, you know, more fun type questions, less about the substance of what we've been talking about. So, Herman, you're no different. We, you get to answer these as well. Great. Um, so, okay, if you were stranded on a desert island, what three albums or, you know, pieces of music or bands would you want to have with you? Wow, that's interesting. I guess... If I would pick three, I would try to pick from different genres to spice it up because if you're stuck in a desert and potentially for a long time, you don't want to be listening to the same thing all the time. So um, I guess one um, would be something near and dear to my uh, adolescence, um, Nevermind from Nirvana. Ah, so good. Second, maybe an R&B type album. So... Uh, Miseducation of Lauren Hill is, is another one that's a classic in my view, and I still listen to this day, and it's still relevant, so that's something. And I guess I, I'm not afraid to admit that I'm a bit of a Swifty, so I will say Taylor Swift's uh, Red Album, Taylor's version, would be my third. Were you yeah. able to get concert tickets under $500? <laughs> uh, I was hoping to surprise my wife with them, but uh, alas, no luck on that front. <laughs> well, well, Herman, I, I can offer that Lauren Hill is playing at Wolf Trap in the Washington, D.C. area uh, this summer. So uh, if we can invite you down to Washington to work out of the D.C. Bureau, maybe we can uh, go check that out. Yes, um, let's make it happen. So just one other fun question from my side is if you can invite any three individuals to dinner, you know, who would you do it and why would you pick me? Wow. <laughs> well, I've got Nathan, I've got Elliot and, um, and, your wife. and my wife. So we'll make it happen. We'll make it a bit of a dinner date in D.C. and then we'll go check out Lauren Hill. Sounds good. That sounds like a good dinner. Where are we going to go? Chipotle? <laughs> um, all right. I think we'll leave it there. Um, Thank you for listening to this most recent episode of Votes and Verdicts. We're extremely grateful to Herman for taking time out of his day to appear on this episode and to really enlighten us um, with everything that's been going on. Thank you to the listener for taking time to listen to this as well. As a reminder, you can read all of our Bloomberg intelligence research on the Bloomberg terminal at BIGO. And with that, thank you again and have a great day.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.